Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Kelly's husband, Austin. (laughs) And before we get started with today's episode, we have some new Patreons to shout out. Let's go. Lauren Young, Kristen Darling, Caitlin Franklin, Maddie Weiss, Amy Jones, Amy Johnson, Megan Reeves, and April Veal. Yeah! Woohoo! Thank you so much to our Patreons. And if you're wondering where our last episode is, we covered the case of Sarah Boone. This is a highly requested case, and it was actually a Patreon exclusive. So if you don't already know, Sarah Boone is being charged with second-degree murder in the death of her boyfriend, George Torres, after he was found dead in a suitcase on February 24th of 2020. She claimed that they were playing a game of hide-and-seek, and she zipped him up in the suitcase, and then she went upstairs and fell asleep, not finding him until the next day. This story was so bizarre. It was so bizarre. He ultimately died in the suitcase because he couldn't breathe, and Sarah had no idea that she had actually taken videos of the incident the night before. The whole case is so bizarre and baffling. If you want to go listen to the whole story with footage from the night of the incident, go to patreon.com slash mama mystery, where we offer one bonus exclusive episode each month. That was like a wild story, and she was nuts. And you also did a really good job of incorporating video and interviews. Thank you. That's wild. Yeah, we included a lot of footage from that case because there wasn't really much to talk about. It truly was one of those cases where like, you kind of just have to see it or hear it for yourself to be able to understand why we're saying it's so bizarre. Mm-hmm. And maybe there were times that like we didn't take it super seriously, but it was just such a bizarre case. Yeah. It's hard to be super serious and... And when the when they discovered her phone and all that, yeah. oh, it's crazy. Had, she had no idea. She had no idea because she was so drunk. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, we're going to get into today's episode. Today's episode is on Herb Bowmeister, and this was recommended by Caitlin Graves. If you want to recommend a case, you can go to mamamystery.com, and there is a um, request form on our website. So this was sent by Caitlin Graves. Thank you. All right. You ready, Austin? Let's do it. Okay. So Herb Bowmeister was born on April 7th of 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana, to parents Herbert and Elizabeth Bowmeister. What day was he born again? April 7th, 1947. That is eight days before Jackie Robinson broke the MLB color barrier. Really? April 15th, 1947. 
No way. That's pretty cool. So Austin, if you don't already know this about Austin, he is a huge sports fanatic. And so he has tons of sports, more memorabilia. He knows random rogue facts about sports and He's like a little encyclopedia of sports knowledge. Yeah, that I don't know shit about crime. (laughs) That all of you people up until this point think that I am not very knowledgeable, but I am. The way that you view (laughs) sports memorabilia is probably the way we view true crime. That's fair. Yeah. So anyway, he was born to parents Herbert and Elizabeth Bowmeister. He was their first child, and his dad worked as an anesthesiologist while his mom stayed home. They went on to have three more kids, a sister Barbara and two brothers, for Herb. That was dumb. <laughs> no, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know why I said it that way, but he had a sister, Barbara, and two brothers, Brad and Richard. Okay. All right. Let's move on. So his childhood was reportedly pretty normal, maybe even comparable to the Beaver Cleaver TV show. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, that's fine because it's a very old school, like back when it was like black and white TV shows. It might have been like sepia toned. Maybe they had color. I don't freaking know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was based, it was basically a show about just this picture perfect little family in like suburbia. I mean, it was kind of like a Brady Bunch for the 50s. I don't know if I'm even in the right decade. I'm probably going to get some hate for that. But anyway. So they had this very normal childhood, okay? But there were some incidents where he exhibited some unusual behavior. He would make comments to his friends expressing his curiosity about what it would be like to taste human urine. Like, I wonder what pee tastes like. That's That's weird. That's golden shower stuff. (laughs) It reminds me of that quote that is from Dodgeball. Um, Is it necessary? Is it necessary? Is it necessary for me to drink my own urine? No, but it's sterile and I like the taste. (laughs) Patches O'Houlihan. All right, I need to shut up. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, he had a, who doesn't have a curiosity about (laughs) tasting urine? I don't know. A lot of us. So anyway, one, one day... He found a dead crow in the road, and then he picked it up and put it in his pocket. He brought it to school and then put it on his teacher's desk while she wasn't looking. Okay. I was thinking the whole time, what a weirdo. And then he put it on his teacher's desk, and I was like, that's kind of funny. (laughs) That's something you would probably do. Consider it. Another time, and I'm not sure if this was the same teacher, but he urinated on his teacher's desk. Mm. So this prompted his dad to take him to get some psychological testing done. But the finding, findings aren't widely known besides the fact that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and with possibly more than one personality. But it wasn't very obvious to everybody. And even his wife later on in life didn't realize that that was his diagnosis. That's pretty weird. So he went on to North Central High School, and he was a bit of a loner. He kept to himself. He didn't date. He was super smart, though, and he was involved in the chess club and biology, geology, government, and international relations. He was very smart, but just an odd duck among his classmates. So in 1965, he graduated from high school and started at Indiana University studying anatomy in hopes that he could follow in his dad's footsteps and become a physician. But Herb dropped out after one semester and started working at the Indianapolis Star as a copy boy. According to an article for People magazine written by Richard Jerome, while he was working there, he and his friend owned a hearse together. So he would show up for work driving this hearse 
And of course, like this would cause a lot of people to wonder, what is up with Herb? But his coworker, Gary Donna, would kind of just brush it off and be like, that's just Herb. He's just an odd guy. He's just being Herb. He's just being, just a guy being a dude. Herb just being Herb. <laughs> a guy just being a dude. In 1967, he reapplied to Indiana University, and this is where he met his wife, Julie Sater. Herb and Julie had a lot of the same interests, and according to Julie, they both liked old cars, and they were young, conservative Republicans. The couple eventually got married in 1971, but there wasn't much of a mutual attraction between the couple. And although Julie found Herb to be good-looking, they were very rarely intimate with each other, with Julie admitting that during their entire marriage, they'd only had sex six times. Holy shit. (laughs) No. That's not a happy marriage. No. It's a very important part of marriage. That does not a happy marriage make. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's, That's sex one time every, like, five, six years. Yeah. Guy probably was so clogged up. Well, they hadn't been married for even a year, and Herb was very depressed. No shit. (laughs) So, which I'm not laughing. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to explain why you're laughing. It's a pretty serious topic. No, I realize sex is serious in a relationship, but besides that, he was very depressed, and he was so depressed that his dad stepped in and had him committed to a psychiatric hospital, and he was there for over a month and treated for his depression. That's a roller coaster. That's true crime's a roller coaster. Yes. So after he got out, Herb got a job working for the State Bureau of Motor Vehicles as a supervisor while Julie worked as a high school English teacher. They had three kids together, Marie, Eric, and Emily, and they were a very tight-knit family spending a lot of time together. But while Herb was working for the state, he came across a letter that was addressed to the Indiana's uh, state governor, and before forwarding it on its way, he urinated on it. Like, what is this guy's obsession with peeing on things? Man, different. So he eventually got caught and lost his job in 1985. So after losing his job, he started working at a local thrift store and got the idea, along with Julie, to open one of his own. So in 1989, he borrowed some money from his mom to open his own thrift store that he called Save-A-Lot. They sold used clothing, but also gave some of their profits to charity. And at first, they were seeing great success with their store. So they opened a second and then a third. And at first, the business saw great success. But by 1994, the business started to suffer, and so did Herb and Julie's marriage. So in an effort to resolve some of their marital issues, they put more of their focus back into their family, and they purchased Fox Hollow Farm, which was an 18-acre estate where the kids could run and play, and an 11,000-square-foot Tudor-style home with an indoor swimming pool. I mean, this place is gorgeous. And the kids were enrolled in a private school, and in the summers, Julie would take them to the lake while Herb would stay home and take care of the family business. Like, everything seemed to be, you know, getting better. Mm -hmm. So in November of 1995, Julie was working at one of the Save-A-Lot locations, and a cashier told her that someone was up front asking to see her. So she goes up to the front of the store, and it's a detective. And apparently they had received a tip about a man named Brian who allegedly brought a man back to her property and assaulted him years prior. So according to the victim, whose name is Tony, Tony met this guy, Brian Smart, at a local gay bar. And Brian told Tony, hey, let me take you back to my boss's place. 
So they left in Brian's car, and Brian drove a long way to seemingly the middle of nowhere. And when they got there, Brian brought him inside, and Tony described the place as being really dusty, and the further he made his way into the house, he began to notice that there were mannequins all over the house, like in various poses and various outfits. One mannequin was standing behind a bar like a bartender. One was dressed in a dress and a scarf. Another was in a sailor's outfit. Just mannequins all over this house. Just mannequins. That's weird. Yeah. So Tony's like, Hey, Brian, what's up with all the mannequins? And Good question. Brian just brushed it off saying, yeah, my boss, he's just old and he doesn't like to be alone and these just make him feel less lonely. Mm-hmm. So Brian brought him into the room with the indoor swimming pool and they get into the pool together. Mm-hmm. And Brian started kind of coming on to Tony and before he knew it, Tony had a hose around his neck. And Brian is asking him, like, are you into this kind of thing? And Brian essentially alludes to the fact that he's into erotic asphyxia, being choked during sex. Oh, man. So he... (laughs) This is such a strange episode. I mean, it's a roller coaster. This is true crime as a... It's like one second I'm kind of chuckling and the next second it's like... Okay. You never know when you can laugh or or not. And you can't you like, really don't. And you can't make comments about somebody in the story, and then you'll feel like shit later. Trust me, it's happened to me. Yeah. Egg on your face. Yeah, <laughs> it's happened to you so many times because you truly don't know mm-hmm. what stories are coming at you. So you have these genuine reactions, mm-hmm. and I just let it happen. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. So anyway, he alludes to the fact that he's into this, you know, kind of thing, and he asks Tony to choke him. And Tony does. He puts his hand around his neck and squeezes until Brian appears to lose consciousness and kind of drift off into the water. It like, makes me uncomfortable to even think about. I know. And I feel like it's really especially dangerous when they're in a swimming pool. Like he drifts off into this unconsciousness in the pool. He could drown. Yeah. Dangerous situation. Yeah. But then Brian kind of comes back to life essentially and he's excited about the rush that he just experienced. So he's like here, let me try it on you. And Brian's trying to kind of sell it on Tony and tells him about the times that he has strangled men in the past and what it felt like to watch their eyes bulge out of their head and their lips swell to the point of almost cracking. But Tony is just not into it. And he's like, Brian, this isn't cool. Like you could really hurt someone by doing this. And it sounds like you already have. Sounds like you have a lot of experience doing this. So Brian just kind of laughs it off and Tony tells him like, no, I'm going to have to like tell the authorities that you're doing this because Tony is well aware of an ongoing problem in, in Indianapolis. Nearly a dozen gay men have been disappearing left and right for the past few years, but due to a lack of leads and an apparent lack of concern among police, the perpetrator had not been caught. So he just basically said, hey, I'm this dude. Yeah, he, he basically I mean, said it without saying it. That's crazy. And now Tony is standing in a dark pool in the middle of the night, surrounded by creepy mannequins with a guy that he believes might be a serial killer. Okay, I got the goosebumps. That's weird. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. 
We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So miraculously, Tony was able to escape from an unfortunate fate at the hands of Brian Smart. So he went to the police and told them what he knew, that there's this man named Brian Smart, and he picked me up at a gay bar, and he took me back to his boss's place out in the middle of nowhere, and I am fairly certain he is the reason why these gay men are going missing. Well, police search the name, but it yields no results, and without a clue as to where this guy's boss lives... I just put it all together. This is Herb. Holy shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to I had to barge in there. That was crazy. Mm-hmm. So police are at a standstill because they've been given a fake name. They have no idea. They have no other lead. Now it's 1995, and years have gone by since men from the gay community started and continue to vanish. In fact, one of Tony's own friends, Roger Goodlett, went missing in July of 94, and now Tony has this strong feeling in his gut that he knows what happened to him. And if he could just figure out how to get back in touch with Brian Smart, then maybe he could stop this from happening. Well, on August 29th of 1995, Tony is hanging out at a local gay bar, and when he looks up, he spots him. Brian Smart is there in the bar. Tony regains his composure and comes up with a plan, and he asks a friend of his at the bar to inconspicuously follow Brian to his car when he leaves so that he can get his license plate number. He does, and Tony immediately takes it to the police. They run the plates and discover that the car is registered to a married father of three named Herbert Bomeister. Holy shit. Do you think when I guessed that, like the listeners thought it too, or did I completely ruin it? <laughs> no, I think, I don't know. It I, just hit me. I was like, I gotta say it. No, yeah, I think that's, you know, the point is that it's going to hit you at some point, whether I have to tell you or you're going to realize it yourself. It's kind of like you and I watching movies together. I always predict the ending long before you realize what's even, what the movie's even called. That's <laughs> <Yeah>, true. <laughs> okay. So one of the detectives. Kind of a hater dig there, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> One of the detectives goes to one of his Save-A-Lot stores and approaches Herb with this information that they're looking into multiple disappearances and they want to know why his car might be at a gay bar that night. Well, according to A&E's documentary, The Secret Life of a Serial Killer, just this detective's mere presence shook Herb to his core and he was visibly shaken up. But was he nervous because they suspected him to be a serial killer or because he could be outed for being gay? Herb had built this life as a businessman, husband, father of three, uber conservative Republican. And he was very upset that they saw his car there and that they were asking him these questions and even told them, like, my family, they can't know that, you know, my car was seen at a gay bar. Like, they don't know that I even go to these places. Mm -hmm. So he shut down any further questions that they had. And that is when they go to the Save-A-Lot and ask to speak to Julie in November of 1995. During that conversation, they revealed to Julie that Herb was being investigated for homosexual homicide. And at first, Julie felt like the wind was just totally knocked out of her. She didn't even know what, it, what that meant. She asked herself, you know, I know what homosexual means and I know what homicide means, but like, what does that mean when they're together? Like she was just so shocked. 
She was stunned and in disbelief. She had never even seen Herb raise his voice at her or their children, let alone be even remotely violent with any of them. She pleaded with detectives, telling him, no, you've got it so, so wrong. This is not the Herb she knew. Somewhere, they got it wrong. And when they asked to search the property, Julie declined and told them, you're not searching anything without a search warrant because you have no evidence. And she was right. They didn't have a search warrant and they weren't able to even obtain a search warrant because they didn't have evidence. All they had was this guy's word. And of course, you know, the license plate. Yeah, like a witness saying his car was at this gay bar, but like that's not enough. Mm-hmm. So behind closed doors, Julie asked Herb for the truth. She confronted him with the detective's concerns, but he just kind of dismissed her. But beyond the ongoing investigation, Save a Lot was floundering and on the brink of foreclosure. So needless to say, these things had an irrevocable effect on their marriage, and Julie filed for divorce on January 4th of 1996. So they only made it like months after that whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's spiraling. Mm-hmm. So even though Julie filed for divorce, she still maintained his innocence, and she told her attorney that she couldn't believe what the detectives were telling her, and that none of it made any sense. So she asked her attorney to speak with the detectives and kind of just get his opinion and his feel for what's going on. Well, by June, Herb's behavior was just spiraling out of control. He closed one of the Save-A-Lot stores without even telling Julie. He was becoming really angry and aggressive towards everybody. And then on a whim, he took their son, Eric, to the lake for just a spontaneous vacation. And when Julie checked their bank accounts, she found that he had emptied all of them. So finally, Julie has been pushed to her limit. She called her lawyer and said, get me in contact with Detective Mary Wilson. I have some information she needs to know. So Detective Mary Wilson drives out to Fox Hollow Farm and meets with Julie. And Julie starts telling her a story about a time in 1994 when their son Eric was walking through the woods in their backyard with his friend, just exploring like kids do. And they came upon a human skull. I just got the goosebumps. Eric ran home to tell his parents, and they both came out to see what he was talking about. Well, Herb didn't seem too alarmed at the time because he assumed maybe the bones belonged to his dad. His dad, being a physician, had saved bones from an anatomy course that he took in med school. And Julie just believed him. She didn't even think twice about it. And she rec- she recalled that he just kept everything. He was almost like a hoarder in that way. He just never got rid of anything. So I think in her mind, she was so naive that she just kind of... Believes this crock of shit story that like a 12-year-old like, would come up with. Yeah, and she was just kind of like, all right, that's, that sounds fine. Yeah. So then she goes back out a week later and the bones were all gone. But she never forgot about that moment. And when she told Detective Wilson... She told her that it was a complete skeleton and it looked like someone had just laid down and died there. So Julie actually led the authorities to the area in the woods where she found the bones originally. And sure enough, there were still remnants of a skeleton there. Herb had removed the big bones but left behind teeth and other very small bones that like you would find in your hands or feet. They scoured the rest of the area and began finding even more bones Some were intact and some were burned. They found more than 5,000 fragments of bones belonging to at least 11 different people. 
Eight of them were confirmed to be from missing men in the area. John Lee Bayer, Roger Goodlett, which was Tony's friend, Stephen S. Hale, Manuel Resendez, Alan Wayne Broussard, Jeffrey A. Jones, Michael Frederick Kern, and Richard Douglas Hamilton. And all of this is discovered because she came forward with a story that she that was swept under the rug for all those years. Yeah, and if she had come forward sooner, Tony's friend could still be alive. Oh my goodness. So Detective Wilson drove up to the lake house where Herb and Eric were staying, and she took Eric, but she had to leave Herb there because the bodies were found outside of her jurisdiction, which would make her an assistant on the case at that point instead of a lead investigator. So it was turned over to Hamilton County officials. They took over the case, and Sergeant Kenneth Wisman made the call to gather some more information before apprehending Herb. So he literally let Herb slip right through his fingers, and Herb vanished. So Herb was finally found after about a week, after his brother told police that he had just heard from Herb a couple days prior, that Herb was heading north and desperately needed money from his brother. So his brother told police this, and they started tracking him. And a few days passed, and on July 3rd of 1996, Herb settled in at Pinery Park in Ontario, Canada. He wrote a three-page letter to his family, admitting that the reason for his impending suicide was because of his failing business and failing marriage. But he never once made mention of the remains being found on the property or his interest in men. And at the end, he wrote that he would now eat his favorite snack, a peanut butter sandwich, and go to sleep. He was found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his forehead from a three fifty-seven Magnum the next day by campers. The night before he died, a Canadian trooper approached his vehicle while he was asleep in the car, and she asked why he was sleeping in his car, and he told her that he was just, just a tourist trying to catch a quick nap before he went on his way. She observed some luggage in the back of his car and a pile of videotapes. Well, the videotapes have never been discovered, and many wonder what could have been on those videotapes. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's for the best that we don't know. Yeah, that's a freaking bonkers story from start to finish. And it's like a terribly sad finish when you think about somebody ending their life because their whole freaking world's crumbling. Mm -hmm. But... He had a dirtbag past. Yeah, and of killing people. Like you made your bed, so mm-hmm. now you can go to sleep after your PB and J. Probably piss all over yourself too. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Are you? Gonna... Oh my god, kind of. But I think I'm gonna leave it because well, I mean, no, because the... he killed a bunch of people. So like, are we gonna have sympathy for a serial killer? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <is> the answer. <laughs> no. So police actually believe that there are more victims of Herb Bomeister that they aren't even aware of. And some of the remains that they've, dis- that they've recovered from the woods have yet to be identified. To this day, the Hamilton County Coroner's Office has requested that if anyone believes they may be a relative of a potential victim or missing person from the 80s or 90s, to offer their DNA to see if it yields a match. So Julie Bomeister eventually sold Fox Hollow Farm to Robert and Vicki Graves, but she still had to file for bankruptcy soon after. And since purchasing the farm, Rob and Vicki claim that they still randomly find bone fragments to this day, and that every time they do, they just turn them into like a lab in Indiana. Mm-hmm. 
The property has also been the subject of a documentary called The Haunting of Fox Hollow Farm, where paranormal investigation teams investigated the property and apparently communicated with some ghosts on the property. Creepy. Creepy. Do you believe in ghosts? That's a mama minute topic, I think. Just answer me. I kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that took a whole minute. All right. Great episode, Kel. Hey, make sure you come back on Friday for Mama Mystery Headlines. I'm going to talk about this week's top stories. We have updates on Lindsay Clancy. We also have updates on Gabby Petito. Lots of things happening. The Alec Murdoch case is still ongoing, and it just seems like he is getting buried in all this testimony. So You did a really good job on that. I just listened today for the first time. Yes, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. We need to get you on there so that maybe you can deliver the happy story at the end because I, I like always that. include a positive story at the end just to kind of lighten the mood because we always talk about heavy stuff, and I try to keep it light, but maybe that's what we'll have you do. Because so I'm your a homework. positive dude. Yeah, that's your homework is to find a good, positive, uplifting story for Friday. I'll give you some homework. Mama. Oh, dear. Mystery. Out. Bye.